So we've been practicing one week now in the Vasa. As we enter a period of retreat, you'll notice how after the mind has settled down, then often the experience of dukkha becomes more prominent because there's less distraction, less coming and going, less activities maybe. So you notice your own mind, moods and thoughts more clearly. See the craving coming up, wanting things, discontent, dissatisfaction. This is why our teachers all said we have to re rely on patience. and resilience in the practice as we are learning from dukkha. Dukkha by definition it's that which is difficult to be with. The Buddha taught in brief what he teaches is that teaches dukkha and the end of dukkha. So part of our practice is coming to understand and know dukkha for what it is, understanding its cause and its nature. Everything is dukkha other than Nibbāna. There's dukkha and there's dukkha. It's the obvious dukkha of unhappy, unpleasant states of mind. Then there's the dukkha of the body, the pain, or the fact that pleasurable feelings don't last. There's the dukkha of the world, nothing lasts, everything is in a state of change, disintegration. The physical things, mental things are impermanent, subject to change, degeneration. So the last teaching of the Buddha pointed this out and said, so strive on with heedfulness, apamada. As monastics, we're living with a sense of caution because of the impermanent nature of the world. The fact that we're surrounded by dukkha makes us cautious, heedful, mindful of the teachings. So that's the only way to free ourselves. Dukkha of body and mind, 
five khandhas. When we lose our mindfulness, lose our wisdom, then the body and mind become heavy. The feeling of experience of dukkha is always heavy. So we attach to thoughts, feelings, memories, and the bodily formation. It's heavy, <coughs> burdensome. We feel weary, we feel hungry, we feel agitated and so on. So the Buddha compared it to a house on fire. And these candors are like a house on fire. The only wise response to being in a house that's on fire is to leave, exit, as soon as possible. But for the unenlightened person, we tend not to do that. We tend not to recognize the fire. We tend to cling on to the candors. It's like we're staying inside the house, so we keep getting burnt over and over again for many, many lifetimes. But the practice that we've taken up the training in Dhamma Vinaya is a way out, a way to liberation, freedom from the burden and freedom from the fire. It's our good fortune that we've come into contact with that. In a non-Buddhist culture, <coughs> most people don't have any experience of the Buddhist teachings, not that much faith or interest. Those who are born into Buddhist families maybe have a very unshakable faith from birth, which is a great support. Those of us from non-Buddhist backgrounds tend to have acquired our faith through listening and reading, thinking about the Dhamma and then starting to practice. The only way our faith can become unshakable is through the practice, to the point where it's no longer just a belief that can quickly pass away. It's actually knowing a firm conviction in the truth that the Buddha taught, because we've seen for ourselves. We know that they're true through the practice. With faith we come to practice, so we take on the Vinaya, the monastic training, the precepts, the patimokkha. This is helping us both in, as individuals and as a group. You have the Vinaya, it helps to give guidelines how to live peacefully, harmoniously, as alms mendicants. So notice when we do have dukkha and it comes up in more extreme ways, then the tendency of human beings is to display their dukkha through speech, actions, and obviously through mental states. 
but the Vinaya helps to keep that in check in the worst excesses of our dukkha. We learn to keep in check through the restraint, the virtues that we learn, learning to use the Brahma-viharas, develop them in daily life, learning to be restrained in the re use of the requisites, develop a sense of contentment, fewness of wishes, not living beyond our means, as bhikkhus, means accepting the four requisites that are provided and finding contentment in them. It means learning to relate to each other with respect and kindness, goodwill. <coughs> Vinaya encourages us to appreciate the value of seniority the whole Vinaya in itself has come to us because of previous generations of bhikkhus, those people who've renounced sacrifice for the practice and upheld the Vinaya, studied the Dhamma, learned the Dhamma, built monasteries, kept the whole religious superstructure going for generation after generation. There's a recognition of the value of that. So in our daily practice, we respect elders in this Sangha, those who have bought, uh, been ordained before us. And they allow us to enter the Sangha, performing the ceremonies, teaching us and so on. They have wisdom, they have experience in the practice that we can draw on. Ajahn Chah encouraged this, to see the value of respecting elders in a tradition. It's not a worldly thing where you just choose by preference who to respect, who to like. It's a quality that transcends the world. So we respect elders. In practice, in the old days, in monasteries like Wapapong when I first went there, monastery. One was always very careful around monks more senior, just a few reigns more. One would be careful not to display strong opinions, make noises or do things that could be seen as disturbing. When you walk past a terrace kuti, you always went quiet. Could even get another monk criticize you if you just walk with your thongs flapping, making too much noise. Flip, flap, flip, flap. Sajan Chao said maybe that monk is in his kuti meditating, attaining a very peaceful state. Then you walk past talking in a group or walking in noisily not worried, not cons not heedful about the where you are, what you're doing. Maybe you'll disturb that monk's practice. Or coming into the hall to see this is a place where people meditate, hoping to attain states of samadhi, upajara samadhi, apana samadhi. 
if we're not mindful of that, we could unwittingly disturb somebody just as they're about to become very peaceful. And the modern responses are, oh, well, they should be practicing, that's their job. They shouldn't be worried about me. But anyone who's meditated knows anything that you can do to support the environment around a meditator is merit. It's good. Helps that person to meditate, helps ourselves to be more mindful. In the Sangha we have respect, mutual respect, respect of elders, we have kindness to the sick, help the sick. We support each other in this different ways and it provides a good environment for the Dhamma to flourish. Because we all have dukkha anyway. We don't need to make more dukkha for each other. We don't batter each other with opinions and views and argue, we don't compete for the requisites and hoard the requisites and so on. We learn to care for the Sangha as a community. This way the worst excesses of our dukkha are held in check and particularly the lay community who support us, they get a very good example of how human beings can live together wisely. They can take that back and use it in their own families and workplaces, learning to practice similar qualities by example. <coughs> Most important of all is when we come to meditate, we've been putting into effort into learning and practicing the Vinaya, then the mind will settle down quickly. So we practice Sati Vinayo, and mindfulness in the Vinaya is already training that very quality that we rely on in the practice of sitting and walking meditation, Sati Sampajanya. Presence of mind and a clear comprehension of what's going on, what we're doing, why, how to do it. Because of the nature of dukkha we have to draw in all our efforts to bring up mindfulness, to establish enough steadiness and calmness of mind that we can actually reflect clearly on the nature of these candors that we're involved with. And since conception this jitta has taken over the body and then with that we get the rupa kanda and then we get the nama kandas. We have memory, feeling, thoughts, sense consciousness and always with a sense of ownership. The unenlightened consciousness is conditioned by ignorance. Ignorance of the Four Noble Truths, ignorance of the way things are. So we take ownership of the candors. We have a sense of self, ego. And that's where all our problems arise. That's where we suffer. It's not so much dukkha in itself. Dukkha is just a quality of the nature of this universe we live in. The problem is we take ownership of it. So we make it my dukkha. So when you have 
Dukkha arises as experience, there's always that sense of this is me, belongs to me, this is mine. <clears throat> so we suffer. Causes a suffering with others, we have conflict and misunderstandings with others, we have suffering within ourselves just as an experience. Because of Upadana, clinging to the candas, fed by ignorance and craving, we get Upadana. So our practice is learning to restrain the mind, bring up clear comprehension and mindfulness, put the mind into a calm state so we can look more closely at this whole process where dukkha and the ownership of dukkha takes place. See what we can do, is there any way to remedy that? There's a lot of looking and learning and experimenting through our practice. This is why we're encouraged to do lots of sitting, lots of walking. We're on retreat, we can do that now. We don't have to seek a lot of distraction. Just learning to be content sitting, be content walking. That's where we also need the patience, the resilience to stick with the practice. Because our mind is used to not being content. In the nature of dhanha is discontent. Grabbing hold of pleasure and seeking and hoping for more and then trying to get rid of the unpleasant. The reason we become calm when we practice meditation is because in the first place it's dhanha goes quiet. You develop enough mindfulness, strength of mindfulness to settle down with an object, with the breath, that the craving goes quiet. So we develop a more subtle state of mind, more refined happiness. We just follow the feeling of the in and out breath. We train in this, we become familiar with it. Body and mind settles down so the craving fades for a while. So we get a temporary release from dukkha. All of us been able to achieve that, otherwise we wouldn't be here. But we have to build on it through regular practice. You find it's not something necessarily in the beginning that you can just control and make happen. Your job is just to keep putting the effort into bringing up mindfulness, sitting, walking, reflecting on Dhamma. And sooner or later we will experience the more deeper states of calm where the craving subsides. That's what gives us the chance to really investigate upadana, the clinging, the attachment that underlies our dukkha and leads to dukkha arising. <coughs> For that we need wisdom, so we have to train in investigation as well. There's always plenty to do, more mindfulness to develop, stronger, steadier mindfulness, and then more to investigate. Sometimes the investigation can lead the meditation.
especially at times when we find the mind is becoming weak because of tiredness or different kinds of weight in our arising through illness or pain in the body, in the legs, in the back. We can investigate sometimes that has to be the way we lead the meditation. Wisdom develops samadhi. So just as we are taught on our ordination day, investigate this body. It's the big basis of our upadana, our clinging, the rupa kanda, constantly identifying with the body, the perception of it, and the way we remember it, we look at it, and the way we look at others. We have male, female, young, old, mine, belonging to me, you, me, you. We have people, we have animals. We have a name for everything and a form of identifying with this body. It's in our thinking, in our perception. So we start to investigate that, running through the 32 parts of the body back and forth, contemplating them as elements. Earth element is the hard parts, water element, the liquid parts, fire elements, the sense of heat, cool, air element, and the breath. You go through the parts, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, these external ones are always cutting and trimming and observe how those parts are not really a person. They're the earth element fed by food and other chemical processes but there's no person in any of that. It's the same hair on the head of this person is the same as hair of the head on that person male, female, whoever. It's the, the nature to change. This hair gets dirty, it smells, gets greasy. It's unpleasant. And it drops off or we cut it off. Go through the hard parts of the body, the earth element, internally, the, the, particularly the skeleton. We can lose parts of the body. doesn't mean to say we necessarily die. Sometimes people, they lose a finger. It means the finger bone is gone. We cut off nails. Teeth fall out. Imagine your teeth, tooth falls out. Look at it on the ground or the table or whatever next to you. There's not a self in that. It's the earth element. The earth element is the predominant element in that form a tooth, or a bone, or a fingernail, or a piece of hair. Every day this body is excreting things. If we excrete, we defecate. It's the earth element coming out. Liquids, some mucus, and grease, and tears. We have urine, we have blood. I remember when I was a young monk, the monk in the next kuti from me got a <clears throat> dengue fever. 
took him to the hospital. He had to have an emergency blood transfusion. He almost died. So just stick a whole bunch of blood in a plastic bottle with a tube. It's just going in to help replace the blood that was very depleted in white blood cells, if I remember correct. Somebody else's blood. It's just blood. It's just a liquid with various nutrition, nutrients and chemicals in it. Comes into the body. Some diseases or injuries require many, many liters of blood. If you've ever met someone with kidney disease, you go and visit them when they're having their dialysis. It's just a huge machine, just taking the blood, cleaning it up, sending it back into the body. It's just a contemplation, this blood is just a liquid element, it's not a person, it's not a being, me, you, us, them. We go through the body like this, back and forth, anuloma, patiloma, becoming more familiar, visualizing, remembering, thinking. And this settles the mind and it teaches us about upadana, what it is how Upadana comes up, what it does to the mind, gives us a false perception of self. It's starting to analyze and change that, challenge that. As we keep reflecting like this, then this can calm the mind down. Maybe the mind enters Samadhi again, can go back to the breath. Sometimes we contemplate the breath first, calm the mind, and then contemplate the body. We have plenty of opportunities to experience this. We can contemplate as we're walking meditation, go through the parts of the body, the four elements, become familiar. What are these four elements? Where is the self in these four elements? As we walk meditation in the cold, the different sensations, how when you're hungry the heat element seems to fade a bit. When you've eaten you feel full, you feel better because the heat element is working as you burn up your food. Feelings of heat and cold internally. Even in the cold if you work physically or you walk a long way uphill and you sweat, you get hot again and you sit down and go still, you get cold again. Heat element at work. There's no personal being in that. It's just part of nature. When there's no mindfulness and wisdom operating, <clears throat> we get lost in the conventional reality of a person, the samuti satcha. We get lost in our names and our likes and dislikes and our personality traits and our character and our beliefs and views. And that's where all the confusion and suffering of life comes from. All our expectations and wants, all our dislikes, endless different manifestations of craving and attachment. 
So we just get caught up into the superficial, conventional reality of the world and a person, personality, being someone. Even as a monk can have it, I'm a good monk, I'm a bad monk, I'm this monk, that monk, I'm this way, that way, I like this, I don't like that. The mind withdraws from mindfulness and wisdom and just gets caught back up into the endless proliferations and the views, opinions. If we keep putting effort into developing mindfulness, then you're, again, you're restraining the proliferation of the mind. You're bringing the mind back just to what is there. Observing with clarity, with insight, the true nature of the candors of this body, feelings, memories, thoughts, they just are what they are. You keep contemplating in this way, being mindful of impermanence, impermanence of the body, impermanence of feelings and thoughts, then you're getting to know the way things are. So in an un unadulterated way, in a way that doesn't lead to proliferation, leads to stillness, the mind becomes peaceful first through samadhi, but then on a deeper level through the presence of insight, wisdom. And you just know the way things are. You know a thought is a thought. It's not a person, a being, me, you, us or them. A thought is a thought. It's a, a mental object that arises, passes away. And you can witness and know that with the mind that is training in Mindfulness and insight. A memory is a memory. Feeling is feeling. Pleasant, unpleasant. This quality of knowing, the pure knowing that we're training in, takes away the grasping nature of delusion. So you know this is just not self. It's not a person. So that out of that knowing comes the experience of sense of freedom from grasping, sense of the empty mind, empty of self, empty of attachment. And you can apply that over and over again. So if you've applied it once, you've seen it, you've had that insight once, then you develop it again, the clarity comes up again. So little by little the mind becomes bolder and more confident in just applying insight to experience rather than getting caught up into the proliferation and the suffering that comes from attachment. So we know a feeling is feeling, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's not self, it's not a person, a being, it's an experience, a mental object of mind that we can be mindful of. The stronger, the bolder the, the mindfulness and wisdom becomes, then the better we can do this, so we can contemplate dukkha waitana better. When we're sitting, the pain that might arise, we can contemplate it without getting agitated in mind. Maybe even get to the point where we can separate the mind that knows and the feeling.
And the mind just knows this feeling is not self. It's an experience that arises, passes away through causes, conditions, but it's not self. It's not to be grasped at as self. Thoughts come and go, but they're not self. The little by little we're eroding away <coughs> the causes and conditions that support Sakaya Ditti in this sense of self-view by bringing up the opposite, bringing up the knowledge that this is not self, and you just know that in your experience, this is not self, so the mind doesn't grasp. When it doesn't grasp, it doesn't feed more craving and attachment, more suffering. No grief and unhappiness, agitation, discontent, doesn't happen when there's non-grasping going on in the mind. The mind becomes still and quiet and peaceful, even if the experience itself is an unpleasant one. You know it's not self. The one who's entered the stream, a stream winner, stream enterer, they don't yet, they haven't reached the end of the practice, they still have defilements arise, they still have greed, anger and delusion, but they know they're not self. So there's that sense of freedom, not grasping on. And there's a confidence in the practice. There's a confidence that Nibbana does exist, Nibbana is real. There is a state beyond the grasping mind, a state of empty of self. There's a confidence in that, there's a confidence that the Buddha Dhamma Sangha is true, what the Buddha taught is true, the Buddha was enlightened, and that this path of practice does work, it does lead to the end of stress and suffering. And that confidence erodes away doubt, so that there's no doubt whether it's I should practice or not. Is it worth practicing? The mind is naturally turning to the practice and turning away from worldly objects. Doesn't mean to say greed, anger and delusion is completely finished, but there's no doubt anymore that the, the only way to freedom from suffering is through <coughs> through the practice. And there's no fumbling or grasping at, at practices and why we do them. No fumbling and grasping and extreme practices that just lead to a lot of physical pain, discomfort without real purpose. And there's no doubt or fumbling at practices that just lead to indulgence. Oh, it's all right, I can just indulge my kalesas. They're only not self. I don't, it doesn't matter. I can indulge them as much as I want because they're not self. Yeah, there's no kind of delusion like that. The mind knows the middle way. The middle way is the Eightfold Path, Sila Samadhi Panya. It knows this is the way to freedom from suffering. There's no doubt about it and no fumbling or grasping in the way somebody who's you know, in a dark room clumsily looking around for the things inside that room. It's like you have a, a light now in the mind, at least you've got a little torch. It might not be the light of an arahant, but it's the light that knows them. this is this is the path or this is not the path. There's enough clarity there so that one is not deluded. Once we practice and that training becomes established, then it can't be knocked easily. 
you know, you meet other people with different views, different practices, they can't knock what you've seen for yourself. Or different unpleasant experiences that come up, like illness or difficulties of living in a world surrounded by unenlightened people. All kinds of problems might arise, but it can't knock your insight into what is the path and what is the way to peace and freedom from suffering. Because the mind has seen it, knows things are not self. Body is not self, feelings are not self. So it doesn't grasp at what is not self, there's no sense of ownership then. The mind is quite willing to let go, willing and able to let go. And there's no doubt, no fuzziness, no uncertainty about it. It's the obvious, correct thing to do, because any holding on would just be cause for more dukkha. An angry thought arises, it might still be that there's anger in the mind, but why hold on to it when it's the cause of dukkha? And it's not self, so the mind wants to let go of an angry thought. It doesn't have to have a big discussion about it, it just knows this is suffering throw it away. It's just the same as when you have some rubbish, you have rubbish at the end of your meal, you have food scraps or tissues or whatever it is you've used, wrappers of things, you have no doubt that that's something to be thrown away. It's no use to you anymore. Finished. It's the same with kilesis. If there's enough insight then you know this is something to be done away with given up, different forms of lust, greed, anger, even the tricky, deeply ingrained ones like fear. If, why do we get afraid? We're afraid that we're going to get harmed and lose something, lose our possessions, lose our health, lose our life. And fear is completely entwined with Sakaya Ditti. That's why we practice sometimes, we stay up all night just to see what it's like. Am I going to die if I meditate all night? Sometimes we sit longer without moving. Will I die just sitting here? Or when there's an appropriate occasion we go and stay in cemeteries, cremation grounds, lonely mountain tops, places where there's snakes or other wild animals and fear might arise so you investigate it. Ajahn Chah had fear arise so much he had to take his own arms bowl as a friend there's nothing else to take, cling on to there's so much fear all the hair standing on end when he's staying in a cremation ground or somewhere with a tiger and then you investigate well, why is there fear what is there? What is fear? It's this clinging based on delusion, attaching to the body and mind as self. Keep investigating like that, you realize what you're clinging to is not self, and then the fear starts to subside. There's nothing sustaining the fear. If you can see there's nothing to hold on to, in the five candors, and there's nothing to be afraid of. All that's left is the brightness of the mind. Mindfulness, samadhi, wisdom, functioning. The mind is refined, and the kilesas are seen as coarse, 
cause of suffering, the candas, the objects of our attachment are seen as something that don't belong to us anyway. So the mind's willing to let go of its attachment, so the fear drops away. And Char said when he contemplated like that, then fear could never come back to overcome the mind. Because there's no delusion anymore about self, what is self, what is not self. The mind knows these candors are not self. The view has changed, so there's no more fear, no more doubt, uncertainty. Some people have to go off into difficult situations to really see that and overcome that, but others don't. One can recognize the truth of just staying quietly in the monastery, just having enough patience, keep practicing, keep the vinaya, keep meditating. The same insight can arise just staying in the monastery. You might say, oh, it's all comfortable, Everything's laid on, but if you're wise, you can get the same insight wherever you are. <coughs> so tonight is one prat, it's an opportunity to practice. Those really want to develop some samadhi, some insight, and just keep going all night. You can always rest tomorrow. Keep doing your sitting. If you can't sit, then do some walking. Sitting and walking. Set aside the desire for comfort, for sleep. Just keep contemplating. So I'll leave you with those reflections tonight.